Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Billboard.com Pop Shop Podcast. My name is Jason Lipschutz, and I am an associate editor and the Pop Shop blog editor of Billboard.com. Based in New York, on the other line in Los Angeles, is the Kanye West to my 50 cent, Keith Caulfield. How's it going, Keith? Wow, I'm Kanye, and you're 50. How'd that work out? <laughs> I was just thinking about those those Rolling that Rolling Stone cover when they had like both of them on the cover and it was like who's gonna sell more like that must have been like your glory day right like everybody everybody was watching the chart that day yeah and, and kenny chesney mind you he was number three that week he was getting into it too yeah they it should was, have had the three-way battle it was it was <laughs> yeah. i thought you were gonna say that i was jay and you were uh yay tanya i mean no no i went saying? i went old school charts on that one i i had to well, well because you. did you read the gq interview with Kanye. i did i did fascinating the, the i i it's always interesting to read these interviews with musicians where like 20 percent of the story is about actually about their profession and the rest of it is about everything else that is not about their actual career yeah it's really true <laughs> it's it, i mean it was kind of fascinating um, i mean yes obviously we're interested in his wedding to, to kim kardashian and his his fashion interests and so forth but you know but there was actually some real news in it about the new album that's coming out later this year, hopefully, and the single when that might come out. So there was some big news in there. Check out that GQ interview. But, uh, well, Keith, on the Pop Shop podcast today, we do have an interview. No, it's not with Kanye West. It is with Jack Antonoff of Bleachers fame and fun fame. He's talking about his new Bleachers album, his new side project, and where fun stands on uh, on his radar in terms of upcoming music. So that, that'll be at the end of the show. Thanks again to Jack Antonoff for stopping by the Pop Shop Podcast. Before that, we have to talk about a new number one album on the Billboard 200. We have to talk about Five Seconds of Summer. Their debut album is out this week. We have a project- projection on that sales figure. Uh, the Hot 100, where uh, Rude still is number one, but uh, Pharrell and Miley Cyrus might be moving up soon. Dun, dun, dun. And um, some other stuff. We got your charts out of the week. We got some angry complaints about the uh, the charts out of the week music missing from last <laughs> week's episode, <laughs> as if it was like a a, de- a life or death uh, kind of a. I appreciate the passion, though. I, I appreciate I, the passion yeah. too. Like people were really pissed off. So. Well, I was a little upset too, to, to hey, be perfectly I, honest. I know. We don't want to usurp your charts that music. Anyway, so Keith, we got to start. We got to start with uh, Weird Al. Weird Al Yankovic. That is, as if there's any other Weird Al. Weird Al is number one on the Billboard 200 Albums Chart with Mandatory Fun, his first number one album. And Keith, what is that final sales number? Well. It sold 104,000 copies in the weekend in July 20th, according to Nielsen SoundScan. That is not only Weird Al's best sales week since SoundScan started tracking sales in 1991, but also the best sales week for a comedy album since 1994, uh, believe it or not, when the Beavis and Butthead um, experience sold more copies in the weekend. In, like, it was early January, so it was right around Christmas of 1993. Um so yeah, it was a crazy huge week for Weird Al and his first number one album, and he's been on the charts since 1983. So for 31 years later, he gets his first number one album. Unbelievable. I mean, yeah. this is this is something that I mean. Listen, we we talk a little. We have a little bit of doom and gloom on the Pop Shop podcast. It's about album sales. Um, last week it was like the worst sales week for albums in the history of albums uh, or the the sound scan era, at least. But let, this is this is a, a triumph for Weird Al Yankovic. This is this. What what was the initial sales forecast? It was around like eighty thousand, right? Yeah. Well, initially, like last Wednesday, um, the day after his album came out, the projection was around like maybe like seventy five thousand, and there was 
a, a potential race between him and Jason Mraz's new album, Yes! Exclamation point, which debuts at number two. Um, people thought that both of them might sell around the same amount of copies. Um, as it turns out, both did actually overperform in terms of the initial forecast, but um, uh, Jason Mraz only ultimately did 81,000, whereas Weird Al did way more than initially thought. And a lot of that is owed to this viral video campaign that he did throughout the week that really got people talking, you know, where he released a new video um, every day of the week for uh, songs from the album. And those really got a lot of traction online and in itself became a news event. Like the marketing of the album became a news event that um, outlets covered and probably outlets that wouldn't normally cover Weird Al like we're covering him. He was yeah. on like uh, Fox Business Channel or something last week doing an interview with one of their business analysts <laughs> talking about the marketing plan of the album. And so he was able to get a lot of exposure um, because of this, not just because, oh, there's videos, but because he was kind of, as as many outlets were saying, pulling a Beyonce, even though he's like, I did this before Beyonce kind of did it allegedly, but people are just quick to use the words pulling a Beyonce because they want to use the yeah. words pulling a Beyonce. Well, absolutely. I mean, we talked about the rollout briefly on last week's podcast, but I, I mean, I, I think it's worth talking about the, the whole eight videos in eight days thing. Sure. And, you know, holding this music kind of, you know, away from the audience, away from the public until the week of the actual album release. I, I think that people didn't really get sick of Weird Al because, it, you know, most album releases, most album launches start months ahead of time. You have like a first single that comes out two months ahead of the actual album. And people are like, oh, when is this album actually coming out? With Weird Al, it was like, he dropped his first video for the first single and then the album was out the next day and then more albums or more videos just kept coming and coming. I, I guess, I, I mean, that's a smart strategy. What, what do you think about that? Super smart. I mean, he, I've watched a number of interviews that he's done um, in the past week and he's been really candid about the, the making of the album. Um, uh, and he said, look, you know, you could be over with in 24 hours. Like, you know, you're hot this minute and now you're not hot in an hour from now. So you need to, you know, keep people interested effectively. And that's what he did, where he put out a new video um, every day of the week, um, starting on uh, Monday, the day before the album came out. And he released uh, a new video every day onto different platforms, uh, different websites throughout the week. And so each day you had a video premiere on the likes of YouTube or College Humor or uh, uh, Nerdist, I think, had the first one with yeah. Tacky. Um, even the Wall Street Journal premiered a video um, on their on their blog. And what's really interesting is that he he said that um, the 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 videos themselves were uh, funded by the sites that had the exclusive rights to the debut. So he he's saying that YouTube, Nerdist, College Humor, Wall Street Journal funded the production of the videos in exchange for getting the uh, debut of the video on their website. Yeah. Um, so what I find interesting, because I guess the uh, he said, uh, this is according to a BuzzFeed article, and he may have said this in a Billboard story. I haven't read everything he said. But evidently, his label, RCA, didn't want to pay for eight videos. So he was able to find a way to make them happen by sort of taking this interesting way of marketing and funding them. What I find super interesting is that you know, it's one thing for YouTube or College Humor or Nerdist to produce a music video and to pay for that right to have the exclusive premiere. Yeah. But it's also kind of weird that Wall Street Journal um, had 
also did this. And I'm a, if if what he said is true, and Wall Street Journal then effectively paid for a video, it's weird that you're sort of blurring the lines between like a legitimate news organization paying for a music video that they premiered on their website and then they made a story about said video. Like it's just yeah, it's weird. Well, I, yeah, I'm not sure the whole you know financial logistics, but I, I'm I know that some of the videos cost more than others. Like the word crimes video was just basically a lyric video it was a clever one but it, it wasn't actually like you know shot on location what right. i thought was it what i thought was interesting about this whole weird out rollout and you know exceeding sales expectations i, I think that you know a, a key ingredient to all this is that it came out in in kind of a sleepy week for music not only music but also music news I think that if Weird Al had put this album out and, and done the exact same thing, eight, eight videos in eight days, if he had done this in like November when there's huge album releases coming and even a month ago when, you know, there were some big re- releases by Jack White and Lana Del Rey and Ed Sheeran, so much of the focus would be taken off of him and, and onto those huge artists. This week, you know, there were a couple debuts, um, Rise Against, Jason Mraz, Kids Bop, they all had top five album debuts, but... He was able, Weird Al was able to really dominate that kind of blogosphere um, that he wasn't able to really capture with his last album, Alpocalypse, which sold like a fraction of, of mandatory funds. Yeah, it did I something did, like 40000 in his first week. So yeah, it, he, he it did really more than double. A, and it, it really is all about timing, not only for getting his first number one album debut, which is great, but also about really capturing people's attention. So, so congrats to Weird Al. I, I mean, like I said last week, my uh, my first concert I ever attended. So uh, and now, maybe fifteen years later, uh, number one album, pretty cool. Before we move on, um, I, there's a, there's a big a big statistic that I left out. Um, obviously, Weird Al is a comedian, uh, and this and we talked about how this is the biggest week for a comedy album since 1994. But this is actually the first number one comedy album since 1963. <laughs> Who knew? Um, 1963, the last number one album. That was a comedy set. Was uh, Alan Sherman's uh, "My Son the Nut," <laughs> which was number yeah. one for, for eight weeks, um, starting with the August thirty first, nineteen sixty three chart. It was number one for eight weeks. Um, we've come close. There's a couple albums that that hit number two. Uh, a couple comedy albums that went to number two. Um, Steve Martin's uh, big big album, "A Wild and A Wild and Crazy Guy," went to number two <laughs> in 1978. And in the early 1970s, Cheech and Chong actually had two number two albums. Uh, I think Up in Smoke was one of them, and I forget the name of the other one. Um, you know, folks like Dane Cook and Jeff Foxworthy and Adam Sandler have all done well, but they've never gotten that close. Um, so, you know, it's also a big week for for comedians and comedy albums, too. So next week on the Billboard 200 chart, uh, Five Seconds of Summer, their self-titled debut album will debut, and um, it's looking like a number one debut uh, pretty oh, yes. funny going from Weird Al Yankovic to the complete opposite of Weird Al Yankovic, which is Five Seconds of Summer. Um, so what's the sales projection for Five Seconds of Summer's debut album? Yeah, so Five Seconds of Summer's first uh, full-length album, uh, self-titled, um, is going to do maybe around 250000 it could, it, could wow. it could do maybe a little bit more. It's it's This particular album is a little hard to forecast. Um, and of course, these forecasts are according to industry sources who are looking at all sorts of um, internal data to come up with a forecast. Um, this particular album is hard to forecast because it's a boy band album. I know they're not technically a boy band, but they're effectively a boy band. Um, because um, 
these kinds of albums behave very differently in terms of how they react in the marketplace. A lot of them are very front-loaded with sales. A lot of them are iTunes-driven, a lot of pre-orders. And yeah. so just because you have a huge first day or a huge second day doesn't mean that the album's going to sustain itself throughout the entire week. But right now, it looks like 250 could even be a little bit more, um, but definitely number one in, unless, you know, I don't know, Beyonce drops an album this weekend. <laughs> hey, you never know. Um, but I, I mean... It's uh it's an incredibly rapid rise for this quartet um who had a number 2 debut with their She Looks So Perfect EP a couple months ago. I mean that surprised a lot of people. This actually kind of surprises me even more because it's not like they've had a huge radio hit. Um they've had no. a couple songs debut because of of the sales. But you know, you ask, you know, a, a casual listener, maybe like a casual pop fan knows what 5 Seconds of Summer is. <laughs> Um, and who they are, but they aren't aware of uh, a single. What, what the name of their single is? So, so Keith, what is what is driving all this? Is is just just like the teen pop wave that is is kind of washing over and and keeping these guys so 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 popular despite not really having a radio hit yet? It's not just the teen pop wave, but I mean, it, it they do have a radio hit. Uh, she looks so perfect. You know, did get, did go to number nineteen on our mainstream okay. top forty chart, which is also known as um, pop songs on Billboard.com. Yeah. But that was like you know a month or half ago or something. Yeah, so, yeah. But I know what you're saying. They're not Katy Perry. Um, but it's really what they've done is they've created a, a, an incredible viral campaign, an incredible like social awareness of the band, where the fans of the group they aren't listening to the radio. Like, I mean, I would I would venture to guess that the, the core fan base of Five Seconds of Summer are not probably tuned in to their local Top 40 radio station. Their Top 40 radio station is uh, YouTube. Uh, so they're huge on YouTube, huge on Twitter, you know, big on all the social networks. And it, this mirrors what happened effectively with One Direction a couple years ago when One Direction arrived without any sort of radio hit because they were basically doing what five seconds of summer has done. You know, they've created a social awareness through websites and Twitter and, you know, getting the word out virally and getting that core fan base really excited. And then one direction debuted at number one, sold more than 175,000 copies in its first week with their first album. And they didn't even have a radio hit like that. That the first single didn't even really hit until like maybe like the week or two before the album came out. And that was on purpose. So I'm imagining they're kind of doing something similar because these two groups also happen to share the same management. <laughs> so yeah. it all kind of works out in the end. So yeah, and they're opening for One Direction. I, I mean, listen, I, I like this album a lot. Um, Five Seconds of Summer's debut album. I, it's It definitely scratches my pop punk itch. Um, I, I think it's, I was talking to somebody yesterday who just says that, you know, like it or hate it, um, it's it's a cool thing for pop music to have a, an artist like Five Seconds of Summer. We haven't really seen an artist, you know, really blend those those pop punk and and rock influences so well with with the pop influences. There, there. I mean, I, I wrote in my review of the album that there's there's more sugar than spice on this. It, they're not really like Blink One Eighty Two and their edginess yet, but it's it's a good mix of like like you said, they're not really a boy band. They're not really pop punk. They're kind of both. And going back to your point about the the social campaign and and the awareness, I find it interesting that someone like Austin Mahone a couple months ago, with his debut release, you know, obviously has millions of of Twitter followers and a lot of people know you know who he is and 
what he does, and he, he's a, a billions of followers who don't seem to care about the music. Yeah, and that's and that's the thing. It's like it's it's interesting to me that Austin Mahone's, you know, first I guess an EP kind of came and went, and Five Second Summer is going to have you know five times as many copies sold of its debut album. Austin um, Mahone is a star, but he perhaps is best known for being Austin Mahone. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I I, I just bring up Austin Mahone as a, as an example. I I don't mean to rag on him. It's but an, I, I just think no, it's that a great it, example. We're not ragging on anyone. We're just trying to like say something here that like you know, just because you have a huge social presence online does not necessarily mean that you're actually going to resonate as a music. It's star. really true, and I think that the music is really resonating here. You see a song like Amnesia from Five Seconds of Summer's debut album. And it's a really good ballad. Like, it, it, there are some ballads on, or some slower songs on this album that don't really work. But Amnesia is not, not not one of them. And it's it, it debuted in the top twenty last week, the Hot 100. Uh, looks like it, it might be the next single um, after She Looks So Perfect. Uh, I mean, there are some great songs in this album. Check it out. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll be back next week to, to talk about that final five seconds of sales figure. So so Keith, uh, moving on. Right along to the Hot 100, "Rude" by Magic is still number one. There's no, you know, not not much movement on in the uh, top ten of the uh, Hot 100. You have "Fancy" still number two. So you got now now you got "Fancy" still at seven weeks number one. "Rude" is now two weeks at number one. So it's like, uh oh, all right, maybe "Song of the Summer" battle is brewing right now. Oh. All right, <laughs> "Song of the Summer" battle, it's on. Oh yeah. I'm like, I'm, like I, I, I like care so little about like like song of the summer. I mean, I care. But oh come on, it's, it's, it's just so much fun. It's it's funny how like it, it like in the past like three or four years it has become such like a like news thing. Like it's such a catchy like turn of phrase that it becomes like what's going to be the song of the summer? We turn to our folks, our friends, our analysts, and find out what. I'm like, uh, really, really. You it's sound like a thing. you sound like you're like the announcer for like a Power Rangers ad like coming up next coming up next the Green Ranger the Green Ranger just I, released the song of the summer no I, I, I mean I don't know I kind of like it getting wrapped up in it um it, it's fun to track the summer like that um thinking back to 2012 and be like oh yeah listen to call me maybe a whole lot that summer um but any, but anyway so so Root is number one fancy still number two stay with me by Sam Smith moves up to number three uh, like I said, not that much movement, um, no top 10 debuts, um, but I want to talk about a, a song that just, just, just received a music video. We're taping this on Wednesday, the 23rd. A couple hours ago, Pharrell Williams just dropped the video for Come Get It Bay, the next single from Girl, features Miley Cyrus. So let's talk about this song really quickly, Keith. Uh, where is it right now on the Hot 100? Oh, well, on the Hot 100 this week. I like the way I repeat. I'm like, on the Hot 100 this week. still in Power week. Rangers mode. On the Hot 100 this week. Pharrell's Come Get It Bay uh, goes 56 <laughs> to 60. Okay, so it um, so actually drops. Okay. It actually drops. But, you know, as I'm sure you're about to say, it could probably move up next week. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, well, that's that's where the video comes in. Um, now, I, I think I've thought this song was going to be a hit for a very long time. I, I remember talking uh, about it to you months ago. Um and it, it hasn't really tuck off. I think it, it peaked around number fifty six, uh, and now now it has a, a an official music video. It's the next single. What what do you think, Keith? Um, How high could this song go? Well, I, the, the video itself isn't um, particularly different. 
I, I think in general. I mean, <laughs> the, 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 the video certainly will cause a lot of interest, I think, in the short term. I'm not sure if it has a sort of viral quality to it that will keep people watching. Um, so I think the, the jury's out on that one. Um, I don't know. I mean, Pharrell, he's, he's, wasn't there a single after happy and before this one? Well, that's what I was going to bring up is that I think that it has a good chance to rise, maybe not into the top 20 or anything, but just just to keep going up. I I think that it has a chance to rise because people, like you said, have kind of wondered what the next look from this girl girl album is. Uh, Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn Monroe. Uh, that had a video, right? I don't think that ever had a video. That's mm, the thing. Is that there was a there was a video for something before this, but after Happy, and clearly it was such like a non-event that it didn't even do anything on the charts. So you think so? I, I mean, it, it, there's kind of been some confusion because yeah, Marilyn Monroe, he performed on SNL, so people were like, oh, okay, that's the next single. But then you had Come Get It Bay was used in the NBA playoffs ad campaign. Uh, I mean, I'm a big basketball fan. I heard that song literally every day multiple times a day when the nba playoffs were going on in in may and june well there's definitely a video for marilyn monroe it has 27 million views on youtube and was published or loaded in april so okay so i um, totally i don't even really remember that video see um i like marilyn monroe a lot too not the the actress as well as the song um but i think now it's like all right now we have the music video it's come get a bay time like i think i think that's what's going to help it out is that you're going to see more, maybe some late night performances. Maybe you're going to hear it more on radio, bigger push there. Um, I mean, this is all just conjecture, but I, I think that this song, it, it has the best beat on Girl to me. Um, and I'll be interested to see what this video video helps it do. I'm, so. I'm, I'm, I'm interested by how uh, the, the video opens with the, a Chiron across that says, beauty has no expiration date. And, how, and how he tweeted those words to a link to the video. And then before seeing the video, I thought, oh, this is going to be sort of a um, female empowerment kind of yep. video in the lines of, you know, John Legend's new video and um, Colby Calais' new video and uh, Megan Trainer, uh, that, yeah. that new artist. I was like, oh, it's sort of going to be like this this movement where it's going to be like, you know, women of, of, of sort of um, um, uh, sort of uh, untraditional beauty or unconventional beauty, you know, something like that. Um, and then I see well it, put, and I'm like, oh well no, put. it's, it's, well, you know what I mean? Yes, it's, I do. you know, it's like, you know, women of all shapes, sizes and, and beauty. Um, but when I watch Pharrell's video, I'm like, oh, it's like hot girls dancing. Okay. Maybe I missed, <laughs> maybe I missed the point. So well, that, feel, well, that feel free to tweet me and tell me I'm wrong. Beauty has no expiration date was a little, uh, it was a little catchier than hot girls dancing. That I think that was the initial catchphrase. I was waiting for like a really old woman to show up like, you know, on a cane and be like, I can still bust a move. Yeah. You know, and that didn't happen. Yeah. Um, Come get it. Maybe I'm just an idiot and totally missing it. No, no, no. I totally agree. Uh, Yeah, it's a little strange, but, you know, I I like the song a lot. So we'll 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 check back in with that in the coming weeks. Um, Another song uh, I want to talk about a little bit is a debut on the Hot 100 this week, Hideaway by uh, Kaiza. That is how to say it. Kaiza. Like a Kaiza roll. Like a Kaiser roll, like a Kaiser Chief. Remember that band? Kaiser Chiefs. Yeah. <laughs> so Kaiser Hideaway. Um, so this artist is is really capturing something with this song and and with her performance style. So the 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 video has millions of views. It's it's kind of like a, a one shot deal with a, a lot of choreography. 
and then she performed it on Late Night with David Letterman and Late Show. Mid- yes, Late Show with David Letterman. Apologies to David Letterman. Um, and she midway through the song, she went outside and found more backup dances. It was it was just a really cool video, and then came back in, and David Letterman was like, "Wow, yeah. <laughs> yeah." So it was it was a pretty incredible video, and. Yeah, I mean, there's a ton of interest around her. I was at, she played her first, like, proper New York show last night uh, in New York City. And, yeah, obviously, she played her first New York show in New York City. Uh, and she was mesmerizing. I, I thought that she completely completely lived up to the hype, not as only a singer, but as a dancer. And Hideaway is, is a song that is, you know, it's just debuting, but I know a lot of people, I, I tweeted about it last night, like, Hideaway is going to blow up. Yeah. And people tweeted me back, like, I've heard it on the the radio a ton already. So, yeah, yeah. what what do you think about this song, Keith? No, we we um, Billboard wrote about this. Uh, I wrote about this um, back in June. Um, we have a weekly column that runs in in um, the magazine and online. It's called Tomorrow's Hits, yeah. and uh, we we look at songs that are kind of like just percolating or bubbling under or about to like get define success in the charts. And we noted that week that Kaiser's Hideaway was was catching on, um, especially on the dance side. But pop radio was starting to embrace it then, and people uh, really dug the track, sort of like retro, early '90s. Like, yeah, it's got like a rhythm as a dancer kind of feel to me. It's, it's very like CC Peniston, finally, yes. sort of like it echoes that. Um, and and the song was uh, a huge hit in the UK already. It was number one on the official UK singles chart back in May. Um, and then we noted how the video itself is so eye-catching because it's a one-shot video. I think it's shot in New York. Um, yeah. And then she, as you said, she did that on David Letterman, which was great. But it's it's just the combination of her sort of charismaticness. Um, charismaticness? Is that even a word? Um, charisma. Charisma. Thank you. <laughs> I have a journalism degree. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you know that she was actually a, a former code breaker for the Royal Canadian Navy? I actually did know that. So I, I was talking with you know someone who works with her after the show last night just because I, I wanted to find out more about her I, I knew a little bit but i wanted to find out more and yeah i heard she that yeah that she has this crazy background and, and she was a beauty like, queen at one point she was like exactly a, yeah a that was the other queen. thing i heard the, the navy and the beauty queen um, like if that isn't a hook for like like that she's like a publicist dream client it's like well seriously. she's a former navy code breaker and a beauty pageant queen who's turned into a top 10 hit I'm like what <laughs> and what right. and, and one of the interesting things is that i i asked the the person who works with her i was like i was so surprised that I wasn't surprised that the Letterman performance blew up because it was just so so viral friendly and it was like oh my goodness you have to see this performance, but I was surprised that she got on Letterman in the first, in the first place. place. And Instead I asked like, her, I was I was yeah. I was like, you know, Hideaway, it's a great song. It's it's still you know in its infancy kind of in the U.S. I was like, how did this happen that she ended up on Letterman? And you know, the the person who works with her said that. There, there's been a ton of late night interest just because of her performance style. Like people see the dance moves, they see the choreography, and they want to have Kaiza on their show. So I, I think that this is just kind of the tip of the iceberg. It's at num- number ninety-seven, the Hot One Hundred this week. I, I think this song is going to keep going and going, and uh, because people, pe- there's a general interest not around the song but around her. Yeah, um, I, I find it interesting, sort of as a side note, that. Um it, you know, we we talk a lot about sort of uh, uh, Jimmy Fallon um, and the yeah. Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, and um, all the great music bookings and really cool music things that they do. But 
it seems like lately there have been a couple other shows that have had some great um, looks or whereas Fallon like didn't have something like, for example, when Sia was doing all of her performances, yeah. she didn't do the tonight show. She did Seth Meyers. She did Jimmy Kimmel. Um, and Ellen. Yeah. And she did well, Ellen, that, but, she, late she, night, but she didn't. And I, I even screwed it up in our story. I said that she had to done the tonight show and one, someone from her camp reached out and was like, no, we didn't. <laughs> and then, and then we have this Kaiser thing, which seems like it would be a perfect fit for, um, the Tonight Show, or even like you know Seth Meyers, because she's not that big of a star yet. But Letterman went out on a limb and booked her because they probably knew that this would be a really cool viral performance. Yeah, and you may have seen it the other day. I tweeted about it. They staged this really big performance of uh, MacArthur Park on the Late Show with Letterman the other night. I did see that. Yeah, it was near, nearly six minutes long. Um, with the original songwriter Jimmy Webb. Uh, well, I guess there wouldn't be any other original songwriter of the song. He's just the songwriter um, playing piano. Um, it was epic. And at the end of it, the, the singer whose name escapes me, um, gets up at the top of a, of a birthday cake, you know, cause you left your cake out in the rain in the song. It was just nuts. So that, well, there that's, you go. that's funny is because yeah, you, you think about how Fallon has kind of influenced and kind of taken over sort of music a little viral, bit. You know. And then, but not only that, if when 2014 is said and done, I mean, the Kaiser performance was memorable. The, I think the one that people most remember might be the Future Islands performance on on Letterman with Oh yeah, with Samuel Herring dancing like a crazy man. And you know, and and maybe 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 they're they're trying to be a little bit more, you know, because Letterman, you know, he's 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 off. He he leaves the show what At next the, year? Yeah, or, and and yeah. then um and then in will step in uh, Stephen Colbert. Um, so, may, but it's interesting that they're kind of like saying, you know, all right, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. We're going to take, we're going to go on. Maybe there, maybe there's more of a thing to this. Maybe there's yeah. more of a story behind this. Well, Keith, we, we got to move on. Um, it is, it is finally time to get to bleachers. Uh, Jack Antonoff of fun. He is the guitarist of fun. Uh, the Grammy winner for best new artist a couple years ago. And he has a new project. It's not a side project. It's, it's basically like his solo venture. It's called bleachers and, um, it its debut album uh was was on the uh was on the Billboard 200 albums chart this week. Where where did it end up? Why Bleacher's album debuted at number eleven, just missing out on the uh, top ten because of that just... darn Blake Shelton at number ten. Uh, but still, Blake number Shelton. eleven is a great great debut. So congrats to Bleachers. Very cool. So Jack stopped by the Pop Shop Podcast to talk about not only the album, but also the the promotion of the album. They did some really cool stuff. They had a fake telethon that was awesome. They had a hotline. He also talked about, you know, the future of fun and what those guys are up to and, and you know, what the future holds of, of bleachers and fun, as well as, you know, just branching out, doing his own thing and all that and so much more. So here is Jack Antonoff of Bleachers on the Pop Shop Podcast. All right, so Jack Antonov, thank you so much for uh, stopping by the Billboard.com podcast. It's good to see you again. Good to see you too. How has the past month been? Past month has been really, um, it's been great, but it's been a little crazy. It's hard to, it's hard to shift into the phase of releasing something from making something. Yeah, they're I, very different. I mean, this has been a long time in in the works. Bleacher's first album out this week, uh, finally out, and what has it? What has the process been like for you compared to? Some nights, the fun album. Uh, what are the biggest differences between promoting both projects? The, uh, well, making the albums, the biggest difference is just like I would say, the Bleachers is like way lonelier. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, you know, fun is is collaborative, and we talk about ideas, and then 
kind of edit each other and then bleachers is just sort of living with the ideas in my head and trying to figure out what's working and what isn't which um it's 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 almost like a totally different process yeah the only similarities are like like it's it's like you're in like a totally different world because it's like physically like a like a parallel world because physically i'm doing the same things like i'm playing music i'm in the studio but then what i'm actually doing feels totally different can you explain to people how bleachers got started how you guys were on the road supporting some nights in uh, internationally and then most of it was recorded internationally actually yeah but it it got started i mean i always write and i always you know kind of write every day and work on things that could be a drum beat or a guitar part or a lyric it could be anything um but there's a big difference between writing songs and creating an album which actually nowadays you don't always see because i feel like a lot of i feel like we live in kind of a weird time of the the 12 single album instead of like an album of you know different feelings and in different peaks and valleys and whatnot so you know there was a there was some moment where i was writing music and i was writing music and that's great and i always write music and then there was some shift at some point where I was looking at the body of work I was working on and realized it, it was an actual body of work and it wasn't just a series of songs. Yeah. And that was a really exciting, but also sort of stressful moment. Cause that's when I came to terms with the idea of wanting to release it and wanting to put it out and wanting to create this whole thing and create this whole world. And, and that, that's when I started having a little bit of a panic attack. Like, how is that going to be possible? And that's when I got really into this thing that I like doing now, which is like thinking one day ahead. Interesting. And that's how I wrote the album. I'd be like, you know, in Japan and I'd be like, I want to go to the studio. And I have a show that night, so I go to the studio and then I play the show. And the next day I'd be in Australia and I'd think, I want to write today. So I'd write in the hotel room and record and then I'd do the show. And then do the next day in Malaysia, the same thing. And that that worked. But the idea of like, you know, if you know, I was like, I'm going to make an album, I would have just like freaked out. Yeah. But just one day at a time, putting it together what was possible. putting these songs together when you were putting this live show together how self-conscious were you of making it your own and, and different from fun and what fun was doing because it's obviously the the songs sound completely different from fun they don't really sound to me this doesn't sound like a fun record at all but how how on your mind was that it wasn't because it's it's so inherently different so the the, the project wouldn't exist if it was too similar like if that was something i had to think about i wouldn't have i wouldn't have started the project like what's interesting to me about bleachers and what's interesting about fun is that they're different and that's why it's so important for me to have both of them i feel like i've noticed like a lot in like um media or just people i meet like sort of this need to understand how the two work together or don't work together or the differences are like i read this whole review on stereo gum yesterday which was a really good review but it was kind of like coming at it from the angle of it compared or verse fun yeah. and it's interesting because um i feel like i'm the only person in the world that doesn't see it that way <laughs> <laughs> and uh and it seems so inherently obvious why it wouldn't be that you know if it was coming I guess I guess things you know what if in any and the best way to put it is I almost saw it as the exact opposite because you don't make art for reactionary reasons you don't make art because something else happens so then you have to react to it or apologize for it or live up to it or anything you make it because you want to make it if anything I I hope people understand that the process of the Bleachers album proves that because it was the most unideal time to make work yeah you know I, it was time that i sacrificed sleeping and eating and speaking to family because i was on this like crazy world tour you know there's been so many times in my life when i've been like home you know 23 years old smoking pot for eight months with nothing to do and i have no good ideas i can't think of any songs and then the moment i'm on this big world tour and the, the, you know my band is really doing well is when i get hit with an idea for another album so you never know when it's going to happen 
but the reason why it matters is because they are separate and that's why you can do them. Yeah, I mean, that I, I was going to say that it is kind of interesting that not only was it a time when you were busy on the road supporting fun, but also when fun, which had been going for years beforehand, had reached like a pinnacle of success where you guys were winning Grammys and having number one records. And it, it would have been... Makes me think maybe that's it also like maybe all that was stirring a lot up in me to like want to just write music in my yeah. hotel room. Yeah. I, I mean, speaking of taking risks, the the first single I want to get better is so interesting to me because it's this huge anthem and it's so catchy and you have this great video where you're a psychotherapist and Lena directed it and you have guest stars in it. And it's it's it like on the outside it's like, oh look at this like fun, cool single from Bleachers. And then you listen to the song and it's actually kind of a devastating little song. Yeah. I, I mean I like that. <laughs> I like the idea of kind of thought to myself if this is going to be on the radio or if people are going to hear this um it's got to really matter and it's got to have a lot of weight yeah and i also had this idea for this idea i had this i want to get better idea for a long time and i didn't know how to make it work and and then it occurred to me at some point that the only way to make that idea work is is to give it weight and the only way to give it weight is to tell my story so it's like if i want people to connect with that concept uh, you know in terms of what's going on in their lives i need to be honest about what's going on in, in my life yeah so it seemed like the only way to really make this thing happen was to just write like a diary my, my last question is you know you're you're releasing this album and you have to have some sort of plan as to what the next six months, next year, next few years look like for you. You've said that there's going to be fun music coming. Do you see yourself kind of concurrently running Bleachers along with being in fun? Like, do you see, like, these two projects, do you see more projects coming from you? Like, do you have any kind of little blueprint as to what is going to happen in the next few you years with these small projects? Yeah, Okay. Without going too far into the future. Because I think it's always important to remember, like, a year ago, I didn't think I'd be here. Yeah. With you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you had this vague idea of yeah. this Jewish podcast yeah, host, and, and then you're like, wow, vague idea I'm here. Your general face in this table. And, <laughs> but not exactly at the point. Um, so I try, to, I try to think enough in the future where I'm not going to, like, shoot myself in the face. Yeah. You know, I need to make time for stuff. But, I, you know, I want to run things at, at the same time. I want to make another fun album in the next coming months. I want to tour this album for the next two years and put out a fun album and I want to keep writing and producing other artists too. And I, gu- I guess, I guess more than, more than specifics. I mean, that's I mean, who, who fucking knows what will happen, but more than specifics, I want to stay creative and stay interested. And, in, you know, the worst thing you could do for the universe is to make art that you're not excited to make. And we all can hear it when people do that. Yeah. And it doesn't uh, help the world, you know, kind of move on and become more interesting. So I just want to keep doing really exciting things. I'm really excited about places right now. I'm really excited about the future of fun. I'm really excited about the future of music and pop music and whatever role I can play in that, kind of working and producing other stuff. So I don't know, but who knows? Thanks again to Jack Antonoff of Bleachers for stopping by the Pop Shop Podcast and check out, again, Strange Desire, its debut album, uh, number 11 on the Billboard 200 this weekend they're playing a ton of shows they just announced more fall tour dates they're going to be at Lollapalooza so check them out there if you're going so Keith are you ready it is time with the Charstat music for your Charstat of the week 
train this week. Okay, cool. Have I I may I have got the chart stat of the week for you. It it is it is long um and it's down to get the friction on. Um is it, but it, no, it's seriously it's a really good one and it was a total accident that I discovered it, but I okay. could just say that I'm really smart. So here it is. We're going to the movies this week with the chart set of the week because on this day, July 24th, is when we're recording this, in 1982, 1993, and 1999, the new number one single that week on the Hot 100 was from a movie. So three different movie hits, three different weeks, three different number ones, all on this day in history. Wow. So I'm going to start off in 1982, Survivor's Eye of the Tiger from Rocky Three topped yeah. the chart. Uh, it jumped four to one that week, and it spent six weeks at number one. It was the only number one hit for Survivor, um, though they did earn a total of five top tens, uh, including another song from another Rocky movie, uh, Burning Heart, from Rocky Four. Uh, fast forward to 11 years later in 1993, UB40's cover of Can't Help Falling in Love from the movie Sliver jumped two to one, and it spent seven weeks at number one. Um, it was the second number one, actually, for the group, and the second cover number one for the for the act. They uh, first hit number one with Red Red Wine, say that seven times fast, yeah. um, back in 19, 1988, and of course, Neil Diamond wrote Red Red Wine. And then our final movie number one uh, on this date in history was in 1999, on July 24th that year, Will Smith's Wild Wild West. Yes. From yes. the movie of the same name, oh, jumped eight yeah. to one on the Billboard Hot 100. Uh, the song, which featured Drew Hill and Cool Mo D, spent two weeks at number one, and it was the second number one for Will Smith. Uh, and of course, the song memorably sampled Stevie Wonder's own former number one hit, I Wish. Uh, it oh, basically yeah. was the entire music of the song, uh, which <laughs> topped the Hot 100 back in 1977. So Keith. there's your chart stat of the week. That was an incredible chart stat of the week. Did you know that Wild Wild West is a is like a karaoke staple of mine? You're, really? Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. We're going straight to the Wild Wild West. Do you know what album that appeared on aside from the Wild Wild West soundtrack? Well, it was on the, wasn't on like the Willennium album? Oh, my goodness, Keith. It was indeed on the Willennium soundtrack. Or not the soundtrack, the actual album. It was called Willennium. And you loved you loved Will Smith and Weird Al when you were little. <laughs> do you remember? All right, one, one last. This, this what is else do I remember from the past? <laughs> do you remember the lead single from Willennium? Uh, wasn't it? Was it Will Two K? Oh my God, Keith! You know too much about Will Smith, just like me. Uh, so it I, was I, Will I, 2K. I actually, I, what I when I was in college, one of the <laughs> albums I reviewed uh, was Will Smith's. Uh, Oh God! What album was that? Um, was Big Willie style. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. I, I reviewed Big Willie style when I was in college for the college newspaper, I'm, among other albums, because I wrote yeah, a lot about music back incredible. then. Incredible. All right, Keith, yeah. we 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 are way over on this. Week. I know. Uh, we got we got to wrap this up. Uh, thanks again to Jack Antonoff uh, for stopping by the Pop Show podcast. That was a great great conversation. And uh, yeah, Keith, we'll be back next week. Um, coming up, we're we're actually going to have uh, a Lollapalooza. Not not you, but me. We might have another Lollapalooza um, podcast, just like we did with Bonnaroo. I'll be there, as well as some other Bill Borders. Um, that'll be up after next week's episode. So, uh, Keith, do you have any parting words? I do not, because we're running so late. I know. We, we, we Hey, man, there was a lot to talk about this week. 
got Weird Al. We got Five Seconds of Summer. And you're so much fun to talk to. Uh, thanks, man. Well, we're going to go out on your favorite Will Smith song and mine, Will 2K. Thanks for listening, everybody, and take care.